Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everybody welcome to profoundly pointless my name is nick coming up in this episode we're going to be talking about climbing and cats like i I never thought i'd be a professional climber and i went traveling around the world when i was 19 and everyone i met would kind of like be really surprised at how good i was and i guess that's when i started to think oh maybe like i'm actually kind of good at this i definitely still get scared and i see that as like what's so attractive um in climbing like I don't want to ever get to the point where I'm not scared but if you let the kind of the negative self-talk get in and if you think about falling all of a sudden you become a terrible climber yeah you don't need written documentation to know that the sun is hot this is just a basic fact of the universe that once you pass 27 you can't say FOMO or JK or LOL I even feel bad about putting like a ha-ha at the end of things. I, I usually don't turn down a challenge, not necessarily saying those are risks by any means. To be honest, um, the challenges that you're talking about are mainly eating challenges. Sure, but there's still risks, right? My number five is meow. Guess what my number five is? Also meow. <laughs> no way. Yeah. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. I've never really been a huge sports fan. I like sports. I like playing sports. I like watching sports when it's a big game, but I've never really been super into it. I've always been fascinated though by professional athletes, not just because they obviously have some pretty cool stories and get to go a lot of different places and meet a lot of different people, but more because it takes so much motivation to be a professional athlete. Our first guest is a great example of that because she's not just, she's not really competing so much against other people all the time as she is competing against herself. And I think that she has some really great insight into how you can overcome your fears and find out what you're really capable of. This is professional rock climber, Hazel Findlay. How did you get started in rock climbing? Uh, my dad was a climber and also like quite a well-known rock climber in the UK. And he introduced me to climbing, you know, was introduced to it like super early. But then I guess he started taking me and my brother rock climbing when I was like seven years old, something like that. 
did you like it or was it more of a thing that you kind of went along with dad? Um, a bit of both. I mean, I definitely started liking it a lot at some point, but it kind of like ebbed and flowed. I remember when I kind of reached teenage, early teenage years, like 14, I definitely didn't enjoy it as much because, you know, at that age, you kind of want to do like what your friends are doing and you want to fit in and you want to do, you know, the girly girl stuff. Um, And like, it wasn't cool to go climbing with your dad. So there's definitely... And I also got a bit frightened at that age as well. Like, I I, I was scared um, to go climbing sometimes. So it ebbed and flowed. But, I mean, I started competing when I was seven. Um, so it's definitely something I cared about in my, in my youth as well. You know, it wasn't just like I was getting dragged along. When did you realize that, okay, I'm pretty good at this? Like, I'm beyond just good at this? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know, because... Um, I was when when I was really young, when I was like seven, eight, nine. There was kind of no other girls my age doing it, so I was always kind of good, but always within this context of there's no one there to compare myself to. So you know, I was like, I would sometimes go to competitions and be the only girl entering the competitions, or like the you know the other girls entering had only climbed like one year and I climbed like five years or something, you know. So. You know, I I thought I I was good, but I never thought I was, like, really good. And then I guess when I was around 19, I kind of went, like, I I never thought I'd be a professional climber. And I went traveling around the world when I was 19. And everyone I met would kind of, like, be really surprised at how good I was. And I guess that's when I started to think, oh, maybe, like, I'm actually kind of good at this because when you just hang around with the same people and you're just in, you know, in your own bubble, you, you just, you don't have anything to compare it to. So you're just like, oh yeah, I guess I'm okay compared to my peers. But then when you start to travel and like, you're still kind of good compared to the people in all these different countries, then I was like, oh, maybe I should like think about this as a career. And then someone even said to me, you know, like, oh, you would make a good um, athlete on the North Face team. And I was like, whoa, okay. Um, so yeah, it kind of took a lot of people telling me I was good before I believed it because you only have yourself to compare to, right? So it's, it's difficult to know whether you're good or not. (laughs) So for you, it was more of a, you just didn't have anything to compare it. It wasn't necessarily self doubt, self doubt or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, maybe a bit of both. Um, I mean, I think it takes a lot of confidence to say, oh, yeah, I'm good enough to be professional at this niche sport, you know. <laughs> I think that that would take a lot of confidence, and I probably didn't have that level of confidence. Um, but, yeah, also also just, yeah, the comparisons, just, like, not really knowing what was the norm for a young woman globally. Why are you good at it? Are you exceptionally strong? Are you unusually light? you have really sticky skin like what about you makes you good at it um you know what I think the main thing is I just started so so young I think if you if you start anything young you have kind of like a skill level and like a intuitive um ability to move well um whereas like if you learn as an adult it's just much harder 
I think kids kind of learn better and there's all the studies about your brain being more malleable and, and whatnot. But I think a, a lot of it is also just that kids kind of like let themselves learn better because they aren't so judgmental of themselves, you know, like they just like when I went climbing as a kid, it was just play. Like I just used to go and play and like I used to love kind of getting better. Um, but it was always kind of like, did I feel better? Did that movement feel better? It wasn't necessarily about grades or anything like that. So you, you learn really quickly as a kid and then that kind of stays with you. But yeah, there's nothing about me physically. I mean, I'm quite naturally flexible. That's kind of like the only thing I've got that makes me maybe naturally a bit better. But like I'm short and it's not like that helpful to be short. I'm not particularly light for my size. Um, like, a, you know, I have like a somewhat athletic physique, but it's nothing special, you know, like, I mean, a lot of people probably be be thinking, oh, yeah, she's, you know, she's not built for climbing, really. Like, I'm probably built better for skiing. <laughs> are, um, so, yeah. Are, are most rock climbers, both male and female, do they tend to be a certain size and you're not that certain size? Uh, not really. I mean, there's a lot of other good female climbers that are my height. I'm 5'2". Um, it's just that, like, it does help to be tall to some extent because there's only so many features on the rock and you have to reach between them. So if you have a longer reach, it kind of helps. But, yeah, and in terms of, like, build and physique, it's kind of a funny one because if you look at all the best climbers in the world, they, they, you know, a lot of them are kind of, like, skinny and light, but there's also really good climbers that are more muscly as well. So it's, yeah, it's a bit random actually climbing. It's not like there's kind of like a set physique for it. You have people of different shapes and sizes excelling. You want a good, I would imagine you want a good strength to weight ratio. Exactly. Yeah, that's what you want. Yeah. Does, does that ever cause issues in terms with professional climbers where, you know, trying to keep your weight down or anything like that for both men and women? Yeah, no, there's a lot of examples of anorexia and eating disorders in the climbing community, for sure. I know that, like, at some point in the competitions, they had to do a, um, like, a, a a body fat content, like, there had to be, like, a minimum, and then some people even weren't allowed to compete. Uh, I know there's, like, a girl in the UK that she wasn't able to compete because she didn't meet the requirements for for minimum minimum body fat composition so um it's a problem for sure yeah and it causes a lot of injuries too because people kind of like crash diet and then um and then their like performance gets better but only temporarily like you can crash diet lose a bit of weight and then you kind of your performance goes up but the, you, you don't get the longevity of like being resilient to injury and stuff so yeah it's a problem for sure is that is that a new thing because just from my limited experience with it it doesn't seem like a sport that would gravitate to that tour you know to be more about being outside and experiencing nature as opposed to this hard kind of competition is that a new thing um, I don't know if it's necessarily a new thing. Like, I know that a lot of the climbers in the 80s used to do, like, weird diet stuff, you know. Um, but but you are right in the sense that for people who see climbing as more of a lifestyle sport, which I guess even though I'm a professional climber, I've definitely approached climbing from a more, like, 
lifestyle orientation rather than like being the best um, compared to others. For those people, it's not really a problem because they see it as more this like a holistic thing. It's definitely more of a problem within the competition circuit and like high end sport climbing. Is that has that become two different things now? Are like is outdoor climbing a different thing than indoor climbing? Are they are they so diametrically opposed that they don't really go together anymore? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. For a lot of people, indoor climbing was just this like means to train for outdoor climbing when the weather was bad or because they live in a city and they don't have the time or the access to the outdoors. Um, But now it's kind of becoming a thing in its own sport, in its own right, sorry. So like, um, you know, a lot of people who live in cities, they'll go to the climbing gym and they'll never go outside. You know, you you go into the climbing gym and people are like, oh, yeah, I might try going outside one day. And you're like, wow, this is new. Um, and and if they do go outside, maybe they're just going to boulder, which is where you climb small boulders without a rope. It's kind of like easier and you, you requires less of a skill set to do. So it's more accessible. And then also what they're doing in the competitions is that they're like, and I guess the Olympics has something to do with this, but they're like the way that they set what's called the problems or the roots. So like essentially like where they put the holds on the wall. They've made that to be kind of its own style. So like you have to climb inside and you have to train in order to be good at that style of climbing. You can't just go outside and hope that you'll be good indoors. Like it won't work that way. So like if you're a competitor, you're going to be spending most of the year climbing indoors. One looks more like outside climbing and one looks more like slight gymnastics ninja warrior. Exactly, yeah. It's becoming, and that's a lot to do with the fact that uh, sports need to, in order for them to make money, um, they need to look good from the audience's perspective. Um, so they have all of these like jumps and like gymnastic ninja warrior style movements that you don't really find outdoors as much. Um, and yeah, and it's just to make it better for the audience. Is does that bother you? I mean, are there people who are more traditionalist that are you know that's not that's not my sport? What are you kids doing? Or has it been accepted as a different thing? Well, so for me, it doesn't really matter because I don't climb in the gym that much. I don't compete, um, and so you know, I just go indoors when the weather's bad, and I train indoors. Um, but so it doesn't really affect me personally, but I do know that a lot of the competitors are a little bit annoyed with the style because because for them, you know, maybe it doesn't feel like real climbing. Maybe they're like, oh, these people, these, the culture is just becoming, um, it, it's just moving further and further away from natural rock climbing. So like people who who compete but also like to climb outside feel like they're doing two different sports and and it's also I guess it's not nice when you feel like the the competitions instead of kind of selecting for the best they're like selecting for what looks the best maybe isn't as fun for them so yeah I feel like competitors would know more about it but there are some people who are getting a little bit annoyed with it yeah when you go outside and you're looking for a climb is there something specific that you're looking for? Like what draws you to a certain place? 
So I feel like kind of like the natural beauty of the area makes a big impact um, on how much you're going to enjoy climbing a particular route. Um, you know, like some crags are right next to the highway. And for me, that's just like not fun at all because the reason I go climbing is to kind of like be in the natural world and be somewhere quiet and out of the city. So, you know, I'm not, I don't really want to climb in those places. And then in terms of like particular route, what you're looking for is is whether it's got like a nice line to it is what we say. So it's like if you can see that there's like a a natural path up through the wall, then that's kind of like more aesthetically pleasing to climb than if you look up and you're like, oh, I don't even know where I would go and you can't really see any like definable features. Um, so that's something to look for. And then the rock quality as well. Like people like to climb on good rock and not loose rock. Um, and then also just like the movement and you generally won't know if the movement's nice or not until you actually try the route but you know you might try the route and be like wow this is there's some really beautiful flowy movement on this route and so it's going to be really enjoyable whereas if it's like kind of sharp and not that fun to climb then you know that will be a less fun route and in the guidebook people give the route stars so it's like a three-star route will be more quality than a no-star route. I was looking and I noticed that you have a number of first female ascents. Are you looking to do that? Like, will you look for a climb and be, I want to be the first woman to do this? Or is that something that you don't really go after and if it happens, it happens? Yeah, with the first female ascent, it, yeah, it's not something I go after. And half the time you don't even know if you're the first woman to do something or not. Um, you just you generally just know that if it's like a a famous route or something. Um, but the climbing media likes to talk about first female ascents because I guess it's a way for them to showcase women climbing. Um, but yeah, it's not something I go after. Um, but I also have a, f- a few first ascents, um, and they're kind of more fun to do because you know that no one's done it before, and so it's really like you feel like you're kind of on new terrain and you're you're giving something back to the community and like there's a real process of like maybe you clean the route maybe you like decide where exactly it goes so it's like more of a creative process um whereas like a first female ascent is like there's maybe already been 50 male ascents or something so you're just repeating something and that's fine it's just like it's not the same as doing a first ascent when you say cleaning it you're not are you you're not chipping into the rock or anything or are you just you're just getting like junk out of the way yeah cleaning it is usually like vegetation like sometimes there'll be kind of lichen or like plants or you know just dirt on the rock or even dust or something so you generally just brush it with like a nylon brush um like a toothbrush essentially but they have one special for climbing but it's as soft as a toothbrush and you might in some cases use a wire brush but you're never damaging the rock i mean they used to do that back in the day they used to chip holes into the wall where they felt like they couldn't do a climb but that became like really unethical to do because the thing is is that you you're by doing that you're kind of lowering the stand you're, you're not only damaging the rock forever but you're also like lowering the standard which means you're like kind of stealing from future generations because just because you look at something and you're like oh that's impossible i'll chip a hold 
you know, the Adamondra of today, who's probably the world's best climate, he, he would look at it and be like, oh, no, that's a good project for me. So are we close, though? I mean, are we close to the point? I would imagine like you can only do so much. Do you think we have a ways to go or are we at the point where like, look, our, our, our body can only do so much? No, I don't. I think it's open ended for sure. I think climbers will always get better. There's just new ways to train, um, new ways to get stronger, new nutritional ideas and processes. There's there's just also just like freaks of nature that come along, right? Who have just got this like crazy power to weight ratio. And then there's people who start when they're like two instead of five. So they just like have this crazy movement ability from such a young age. You know, that is open-ended. I think we'll always be getting better. What are you mostly relying on? I mean, obviously it looks like you're holding on with your fingers. Is it finger strength? Is it grip strength? Is it legs? Like what are you using or is it the whole thing? It's kind of a whole thing, yeah. But it's like... Some things matter more than others, so finger strength is huge. Uh, like for hard climbing, the stronger the fingers your fingers are, the better because it tends to be the weakest thing in the chain. So like everyone's got pretty strong legs. Like so, although it will help to do some leg training, it will help more to do fingerboarding. So that's where you like hang on a small grip and increase your finger strength. Are there a lot of finger injuries? Uh, injuries? I don't feel like our bodies are designed for that. Yeah, no, this, I've, I've just, just, I had a finger injury in December and I'm just still recovering from it. And then I think I maybe even hurt another one the other day too. So finger injuries are massive. It's so difficult to um, get your fingers strong enough for then what you're asking your fingers to do. I mean, climbers must have the string, strongest fingers on the planet. Um, and like the holds we use are just tiny. You know, it's like if you're a non-climber and you look at that, you're just like, how on earth are you even holding that, you know? So we put our fingers through so much and, yeah, finger injuries are big. I mean, if you are a climber and you've climbed 10 years and you haven't had a finger injury, you're really lucky. Do a lot of people, does that end people's careers? No, generally you can recover pretty well from a finger injury. And if you completely tear something, then usually people get surgery. What now? I was reading something. The conditions. Why did the conditions matter? I, d- I didn't understand that at all. Some people like they're in climbing. They just get crazy about conditions. Basically, like the the rock kind of feels stickier in certain conditions. So, like basically, general rule is like if it's hot out, it's bad conditions, and that's mostly because your your fingers will sweat um, when it's hot out. And just things will feel really slippy. So even with chalk, your fingers will just sweat through. Whereas if it's cold out, um, it's much, much better friction on the rock. I was reading something that like has to be this cold with a slight breeze from the north and the humidity. (laughs) Like, okay. And I couldn't tell, like, either you are completely dialed in or full of shit. And I didn't know which one it was. (laughs) pretty dialed in i'd say i mean it do, the wind direction does need to come from a certain direction because i mean it depends like which way the crag is facing but yeah slight breeze is good because it like wicks the heat from the wall and from oh. your skin um and you just don't get too hot um and you also don't want the air to be humid um humidity is bad so even if it's cold you still don't want that 
the air to be humid because again there's just moisture in the air moisture on the rock okay. so you want it to kind of be like dry and cool with a slight breeze yeah <laughs> but but it's not like somebody and i'm just going to make up numbers i don't really understand this that much but it's not like somebody can climb a v5 and if they get the conditions right they can do v15 no, 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 no. Okay. No, no. I mean, it, it basically, it's like, say you're trying something at your limit that's like the hardest thing for you, whether that's V5 or whether it's V15. It doesn't matter the grade, but if it's just like super hard for you, it, what it might take is it might just take a day with good conditions. Oh, okay. So like maybe you're trying it in the heat and you like keep falling at one spot. And then you're like looking at the weather forecast and you're like, oh, it's due to get colder. And then you go out on that day and maybe you still don't do it, but maybe you do. And maybe just that one limiting factor was the conditions. But it's not like anyone's going to be climbing anything that's way too hard for them or like way harder than what's normal for them just because the conditions are good. No, it's like it's like having a good night's sleep or something. It's just like one of the factors that might help you succeed. So it's one of those things that like when you're at that level, you need every single little bit thing that could get you over that. That makes sense to me. Um, I mean, I think it's pretty hard to talk about this without talking about the danger and the fear aspect of it. Do you still get scared? Are you over it? Or how does that work? I definitely still get scared for sure. Yeah. And it depends what type of climbing you're doing, but there's always, there's always ways in climbing to push outside your comfort zone, whatever, whatever your comfort zone looks like, you know? So I've been climbing like 20, 24 years now or more. And so like my comfort zone is obviously going to be a bit, a lot bigger than someone who's only been climbing a few years. Um, but there's still opportunity for me to get scared, trying different routes, trying more dangerous climbs, climbing in areas I've not been to, climbing like more remote alpine. I definitely still get scared and I see that as like what's so attractive um, in climbing. Like I don't want to ever get to the point where I'm not scared ever going climbing because to me that would like defeat the point in some ways. It's like that challenge is what is what attracts me to the sport and it's what... I learn a lot from dealing with. Is it is it an adrenaline thing or is it kind of overcoming yourself that most people, yourself and most people would are looking for? Yeah, I don't really buy into this like adrenaline seeking thing. Like I don't really think anyone is seeking adrenaline. I think people are seeking like a, a, an experience where they feel uncomfortable they f they feel a little out of their depth they feel um a bit stressed and yet they still manage to perform and kind of in, and in like managing your mental state in those scenarios is like re is really rewarding i mean it's probably like some people might get the same thing in business right in like dealing with risk in business and they like they really enjoy that kind of the kind the the process of, of how to perform in a high-stake environment. Um, and then that, that can lead you to kind of experiencing like a flow state where you, you're so engaged with what you're doing because there's higher stakes. Um, and then those experiences are just the best, you know, when you just like completely absorbed in the climb, you do everything right. Um, you're like hyper present, hyper focused, and then when you 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 manage to like pull that off and like succeed as well, then that's kind of like the best feeling ever, and that's what I think a 
attracts people to climbing. Yeah, I would imagine you're not thinking about your taxes or what you're going to eat later when you're up there. Exactly, yeah. It's like a real escape from the like normal mental baggage that you deal with when you're like in the shopping mall or something, you know, like you're not exactly you're not thinking about your taxes or or anything that that causes that like low level anxiety when you're climbing. How do you know though? I mean, obviously the the safety aspect of it has recently been in the news. There was the three climbers in in Canada. Um there was the um what is his shoot? The free solo guy. What's his name? Oh, I had that film. Uli Ulisek? Stuck? No, the oh had, no, Alex Honnold, Alex Honnold. The how do you the one know? Who did free solo? Yes. How do you um? Oh. How do you know when you like? I, I get the idea of pushing it, but in this kind of a sport where it seems like you know you go too far, maybe in other things, and the consequences aren't so severe. So, what do you? How do you know that you haven't pushed it too far? Like, how do you kind of, as a community, or you yourself, like, how do you? check yourselves necessarily for back of a lack of a better phrase yeah it's a good question i mean for most people we just have this like inbuilt desire to survive right so that's the check it that's what checks us you know i don't want to get on anything that i feel like is gonna where i have a high probability of fail failing and what failing looks like is injury or worse you know i don't i feel like i'm pretty good at risk management um, the examples you gave of Alex, I mean, I know Alex personally, and he's just really amazing at what he does. And I feel like he he did manage the risk of, of free soloing Al Cap um, and was very prepared. Um, and he didn't go into it thinking that he was going to fail. You know, he just walked into it going, you know, this is so within me to do. The other example of the, the three alpinists is a different story with alpine climbing because there's so much more objective risk in, in an alpine environment. I mean, they died because they were in an avalanche and it might have been really difficult for them to to know that, 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 there, was, that there was an avalanche risk where they were. Just the mountains are really unstable um, and... You, you can't really mitigate the risk in the same way you can with rock climbing. Yeah, if you are an alpinist and you're pushing it, then you, you're definitely kind of, you, you know that you're risking it more than most people are. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's not something I'm generally interested in. Is that, is it a different skill set entirely? I mean, or is it mm-hmm. kind of the same? No, I mean, that's that's what's difficult for people who don't climb to understand is like, you know, you have everything from competition climbing to mountaineering and they all get called climbing. And like on one end of the spectrum with mountaineering, it's like the skill set is like nothing the same as competition climbing. Like mountaineering, you're like mostly walking. You're not really using your upper body at all. You're definitely not using your fingers. You need to know a lot about mountain snow condition. You need to be aerobically fit more than you need to be strong um you need to have good rope skills you need to understand the weather you need to be able to navigate you know all of that stuff and as a competition climber it's like a gymnast would have a more transferable skill set than a mountaineer and you know then in the middle you have like alpine rock climbing tribe climbing sport climbing so it's this huge spectrum and so if people say oh you know climbing's dangerous you're like well what activity within climbing because some of it's way safer than driving your car down the highway and some of it's 
way more dangerous than anything else you can do with your time. So it's it's really pretty varied, and and your personal approach to that matters hugely. Like those three guys who died um, in Canada, they were pushing it. You know, they they wanted to do the hardest mountain routes in the world, um, and they were the best at what they did. Um, but sometimes you can be the best and still be unlucky in a mountain environment. Now, you do some of the free soloing as well, right? Is, am I wrong on this? Do I not really understand what I'm talking about? I do free solo, and a lot of climbers do. Um, it's just unusual to kind of push your grade free soloing, which is like what someone like Alex does, Alex Honnold. He he has pushed himself free soloing. He's like picked hard routes. He's rehearsed them, and then he's done them without a rope. Um, whereas the kind of soloing I do, it's like it, the, the grade is so far below what I'm doing. It's kind of like walking along the sidewalk and being and say, saying to someone, oh, but you might fall off the edge of the sidewalk and get run over by a car. You're like, I'm not going to fall off. I can walk in a straight line. I know I'm not going to fall off. Um, and so, like, some of the zoning I do is not it's quite as easy as that, but it's, like, it's pretty easy. Like, it's so within my ability. Whereas, like, other people who are known for free solo climbing, they're pushing it a bit. Are they, are the people who push that a little bit, in the community, within itself, not necessarily in the media, because the media says what the media is going to say, but are they looked at differently in the climbing community? Like, does the climbing community encourage them? Do they try to discourage them? Or do they just look at it as, this is what you do, do what you do? Yeah, I, I feel like there's all of the above um, going on. I think within the kind of more elite climbing community, people just respect it. You know, they're just like, well... That's not for me necessarily, but I really respect the the talent and the attitude you need to be able to pull that off. And I respect your choice to do it. You know, I think that the climbing community might be a little bit different in that respect compared to the wider community, or outdoor community or, or just world in general. That like we're a bit more liberal in the sense of like you just do what you want to do, you know, and not have to feel like you need to explain yourself i mean it's someone's choice how much risk they they want to deal with um and it's no one else's place to say you shouldn't do that i mean i find it so weird when people say to alex you know like oh you shouldn't be doing that it's his choice in my mind and i respect people who do the things they want to do and the things that they they care about so Maybe for me just to understand a little bit more. Like, so the hardest climb that you have climbed would be rated as a what? <laughs> yeah, so it's not that's a, quite that sounds like that's it sounds like that's a compli- much more complicated question than than there, than there, than I than I think it is. Yeah, because the thing is, there's many different grading systems. So there's different grading systems in different countries. There's great different grading systems depending on the type of climbing that you're doing. You know, one one way of maybe describing it is like in the UK, our grading system is like you have a bunch of kind of like adjectival easy grades and then like harder climbing starts at E1 and runs right through to E12. And I have climbed E9 and I've soloed E1. Oh. So it's like a whole eight grades lower. 
Um, so you're doing something like well, well, well within your capabilities. Like that's yes, would be like somebody yeah. who benches two twenty five trying to bench forty five pounds, kind of. Kind of, yeah. The only thing you have to realize, and this is why a lot of people never free solo, is that your brain can get in your way. You know, you can choke. So, like, you know how some, I'm talking about soccer now, um, like how in training um, these these soccer players can, like, easily get the ball in the net. Whether the goalie saves it or not, they're getting the ball in the net like every time, right? And then sometimes when they take these penalty shootouts and there's all of this pressure on them and they've got like thousands of eyes watching them and the game is dependent on their performance and they kick the ball and the ball doesn't even go anywhere near the net. And you're like, but you're the best at what you do and you fail to even get the ball like anywhere near the net like it's because they've choked because they're mentally they couldn't take the pressure so it's kind of the same thing can happen with free soloing where you're climbing way below your grade um but if you let the kind of the negative self-talk get in and if you think about falling all of a sudden you become a terrible climber because you choke um and and that's why some people don't trust themselves to ever free solo does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes as a person who has lost single-handedly lost several basketball games, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I know all about athletic failure. Um Yeah, okay. With, with with this sport, can women be as good as men? Yeah, so climbing's interesting in that regard because it is about power to weight ratio. It's not about raw power. So in, in the sense of like women will never be able to weightlift as as heavy as men because men are just bigger right they're able to put on more body mass but because climbing it you're pulling up your own body weight and not just a weight on the ground um you, women and men can be closer and we also like have smaller fingers which which often helps to hold smaller holds we're often more flexible in the hips which really helps as well so I don't know, like, for sure whether women can surpass men or kind of, like, be on a par with men. Like, I know, for example, kind of, like, the best female climber in the world in terms of, like, climbing the hardest routes is still not as good as the best male climber in the world. But it doesn't mean to say that some woman has yet to be born who is going to change all of that. I don't know. Um, I, I do feel that, like, in like from my own personal experience that men are generally still stronger than women. They still have, even when you factor in weight difference, they're still stronger. But, but sometimes women can be better. And so like they have better technique, which means they don't need to be quite as strong. But I still feel like there's probably going to be a gap. There'll probably be a gap. I was so. just looking at it in terms of the sense, like you look at men's basketball and women's basketball, and those are you know those are nowhere near each other. But this looked like rock climbing looked like well, they're really close. Like mm-hmm. that that's much yeah. more. You know, you could have a competition where everybody is competing, and you could have you know not upsets, but you could have women win that. Yeah, yeah, you can. Like they're definitely a lot closer for sure. Um, but there's still a gap. Um, but you know, I don't. I don't feel like it matters that much. You know, I feel like people 
I think the main thing is that we support women's climbing just as much as male climbing, which you don't see in other sports. Like, I don't know any female basketball players, um, you know, or like American football. I don't know, you know, like those, the female yeah. teams just, they're not supported, right? Um, so I feel the main thing is that we just, we respect women climbers as much as we do male. And I think that is generally the case within the climbing community. As a professional climber, is this basically the question that I'm going to be direct and ask you is essentially how much money do you make? I mean, do you make, is this the living? Can this support you pretty well? Yeah, I, I can live entirely off my professional climbing income. Um, and there are, but there are other ways I can top up that income. So I do kind of speaking events and I do some film work and I, I also coach. So I'm a, a coach for mental training for climbing. So kind of like the psycholo- psychological side of things, I, I coach people in that. Um, so that's, but I, you know, that's more from personal interest than because I need to do it because of the money. Um, but if you compare climbers to other athletes, we're not making much money, you know, like I make a modest income. Um, whereas like, you know, the best basketball players are billionaires, right? Like yeah. there's, there's only a few professional climbers who are like really making the big money and they, they would be Alex Honnold and who is, you know, an Oscar winner, right? So um, it's definitely still a niche sport and people aren't making big bucks generally. As a woman in the industry, I mean, I look around and do you ever feel pressure that, oh, if I did this a little bit different, if I wore this instead of doing this, do you feel that pressure in rock climbing or does that really not exist? There is some of that going on for sure. Um, Climbing's definitely not as bad as other sports, but you do have this phenomenon of female climbers who are famous and successful and make a lot of money and get a lot of sport support from sponsors because they are willing to kind of like show flesh and kind of promote their appearance rather than their talent just to kind of put it that way um there's definitely that going on and you know i know personally if i like played that up more maybe I would have more following because, you know, all of this, like to be a professional climber is basically to like be good at social media. A lot of, you know, social media is just such a huge part of being an athlete these days. Um, and it's, a, I find it a bit upsetting, disappointing that, you know, that like appearance for women just sells more. It's like more of a commodity than it is for men. It matters more. And so, but you don't, I don't necessarily feel the pressure. It's just like, I I know that I would maybe make more money if I did do more of that, which is a bit sad, I think. What is the worst rock climbing scene in a movie? Oh, oh, I don't know. Oh, like in, in a normal Hollywood movie? Yeah. Oh, what's that one where they like rip all the pieces out of the start of it? Oh, Vertical Limit. Yeah, yeah. That's so awesome, though. I love it just because it's so stupid. Like, uh, this, in the start where it's like there's a family climbing or something and, like, all the pieces rip out and then he's, like, hanging and then they have to cut the rope. It's so ridiculous. It's just, like, that would never happen. Um, but it's funny, though. Like, 
it's just a funny scene. <laughs> what is what is the best rock climbing scene in a movie? Not I think not it's that one. <laughs> is it, yeah, it's kind of both, I guess. Really, isn't it? Best and worst, yeah. Do you hate how the media kind of describes it? Because I feel like this is something where where the general media would describe rock climbing and just get it basically completely wrong. Yeah, the general media is always getting climbing wrong um, in multitude of different ways. Um, you know, like we have this tabloid newspaper in the UK called The Sun. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah. Or it was, or maybe it's the Daily Mail. I think it's I both which actually. One it was. Both, both the tabloid, terrible tabloids. I'm just trying to think which one this was. But they interviewed me and they said the most ridiculous things about me. It, they were like, I'm addicted to dr- adrenaline and I've like never said that in my life, you know. And they just want to play up that side of it and don't realize that that's only a small part of climbing. So, yeah, they just, they, it was so funny. I don't know if you followed the Dawn Wall. Um, Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Yorgerson did the Dawn Wall, which is like one of the hardest routes up El Capitan. And there's a huge media circus around that. Like people got really involved in it, but no one really understood what they were doing. They, <laughs> none of the media really knew what was going on. That, the, the really famous, the rock climber that we were talking about, Alex Honnold, didn't they misspell his name or something? Wasn't there a story yeah, I think like they called him like Honlove or something? I just remember was, seeing, yeah. like, I think that's not even his name. <laughs> it's pretty yeah, bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do people ask you to open bottles a lot? <laughs> um, the thing is, you know, it's like I mostly hang out with other climbers, so not really because they all they also have strong hands. Um, but I guess my mom asks me to do that. <laughs> She's river for you? Okay, if there's one, like, if we had to have one person, one rock climber, he's got to climb this thing to save the world, who are you picking? A hard rock climb or a rock climb where there's consequences? Ooh, I didn't, let's do both. I didn't think of that. So Adam Andre is probably the one person capable of climbing the hardest thing. He's, like, pretty much, people are sort of except that he's the best rock climber in the world in terms of, like, climbing the hardest level. Um, and then Alex Honnold would be the person I'd trust not to fall the most. He's, like, the most calm, in-control, mentally strong climber in the world, for sure, who's ever lived, I, I, I think. Best rock climb you've ever done? What's your favorite one? Um... Probably the different the routes I've done up El Capitan. It's just like big wall climbing is amazing. You know, you like camp on the wall when you're up there for like a week at a time. And that's just like the most fun thing ever. I love it. Is there a difference between when you get like, okay, I'm kind of scared at 100 feet up. Are you more scared at 500 feet? Or once you're, does that make any difference at all? To some people it does, to me not so much. Like some people who's, who are like feel uncomfortable with exposure become more scared at, at, like the higher they go. I'm generally okay with it, but to some people it's tricky. You were a philosophy major? I don't know why, for some reason that stood out to me. Yeah, yeah, I did philosophy at Bristol University in the UK. What was it about philosophy? I just love philosophy. I just, I like um, that kind of critical thinking. I like um, 
arguments. I like logical reasoning. I, I kind of like the the breadth of the subject. You're not you're not kind of like getting bogged down in like this niche area. You're kind of asking big questions um, that like underlie other subjects. You know, so you can like do like the philosophy of medicine. You can do the political philosophy you can do ethical philosophy you can do philosophy of science you know there's just philosophy you can just ask interesting big questions about any subject um so yeah that's what i really like what philosopher would have made the best rock climber oh i have no idea none of them probably it's been too many t- so much time reading what's one climb that you've done that you're proud of doing it but you would never ever do it again um, oh God, that's a tricky one. I mean, I just did this route in near uh, Moab in Utah. There's like this 70 meter crack line, 220 feet. And, um, I'm really proud that I did it, but like, because it was a crack, I was like shoving my fingers in this narrow crack repeatedly. And it's kind of like made my knuckles really sore, my fingers really sore. And it was like just this painful experience, you know? And so now I'm like, oh, I don't ever want to do a route like that again. What do you got coming up? Uh, I'm going to Mongolia on Wednesday. What? What? Yeah, to go climbing. Yeah. I'm going to explore some new rocks in Mongolia that haven't been climbed before. That's That's a place like I know. I don't. Do they have? They have that many rocks there? I mean, I would. That's that's out there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty random. They have mountains and they have smaller rocks. We're going to be climbing on the small rocks. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's not renowned for rock climbing, probably because not many people go there, but also there's nothing like crazy exciting there. But there's still a lot of rock that hasn't been climbed. So it will be like an exploratory trip. I want to thank Hazel so much for joining us. If you want to connect with her, we have linked to her on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There's also a little bit in the RSS feed, which if you just look down on this podcast, you'll see a whole bunch of links. Those are links to her different social media accounts and to her website as well. It's really cool to look at her Instagram. Not just because it's inspirational, And she has some great messages about how you can overcome your fears. But also it's really cool just to see all of these different places in the world. Okay, so now let's go ahead and give John Shaw a call. And I'm calling him really late. He's a big stickler on being on time. But I'm just going to try to reverse this and see if we have any success. What's going on, pal? Wow, about time you answered. (laughs) About time I answered. Yeah, we've well, been sitting here like a cat in the window waiting for you to call. What do you do when what's your reaction when like I'm a little bit late? Give me give me your reaction at a couple of minutes late, 5 minutes late, 10 minutes late, and now when I'm calling you 15 minutes late. I mean, it's pretty much the same thought. I, I figure that you're either doing it on purpose or you actually have something going on. I would say 20 minutes is probably my limit, and then I would text you to see if you're just being a dick or if you actually have something that came up. Are you waiting with the phone in your hand? Is the phone, like, sitting there and you're looking at it? Do you check to Uh, see if maybe I called and you missed it? What do you do? I mean, I usually have it in front of me, so, like, I know when you call. I would say that I occasionally, uh, you know, if it's, like, 15 minutes like you were tonight, I might, you know, 
open up, you know, go to the homepage once or twice just to see if I may have missed a phone call or something. So you do get a little bit antsy, but not like real antsy. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I get a little antsy. I mean, to believe it or not, I like talking to you. Wow, wow. Um, speaking of that, <laughs> have you ever been in a situation in which you could have done something and you just simply said, no, I'm not doing that? Like, uh, for example, not, maybe yeah, it, it, it was a past, like a past job or a friend needed you or something like that, and you just said, no, I'm not going to do it. No, you know, I... I it can be a curse and a blessing, but I'm usually the person that's pretty reliable, believe it or not. For the first time ever, I ask you this, because for the first time ever, I said no to something. And you. I feel like that we're brought up thinking that there's going to be this big response, or we're going to get in trouble, or the person isn't going to like us, and absolutely nothing happened. Do you want to explain who you let down? Um, well, I let down my family, my friends, and most of society on a daily basis, but I, I would say that I let down some people that I know, and I'm pretty much okay with it. Have you said no because you had something going on, or, or you just, you know, you just didn't feel like doing it? I mean, I, I feel like that is a perfectly good reason to say no in any situation. But I've never, I so I, in this reason, I had something else going on and had a good reason, I probably could have done it, but I simply said no, and I've uh, never done that before, fine. and I've always thought there would be some big fallout or people wouldn't like you, and that's really not the case. I mean, it sounds like you have a deeper issue with wanting to be wanted. Ooh, that's some, I don't know if you just psychoanalyzed me or yourself. <laughs> you know, I would say I do have cases of FOMO every now and again. What's that? The fear of missing out. How old are you? 31. Not okay to say that then. 27 is the hard cap on FOMO and any kind of thing like that. Not appropriate That's for you to say bullshit. it. bullshit. No, you can't say that at 31. You can say you that all the way up cap. to 20. Huh? You, there is no universal cap for when you can or cannot stop saying things, except for LOL and JK. Yeah, yeah, the hard cap is 27. That's the cap for that. You can't say that past 27 anymore. It's not appropriate. Because you've then I'm slipped... you written documentation. Yeah, you don't need written documentation to know that the sun is hot. This is just a basic fact of the universe that once you pass 27, you can't say FOMO or JK or LOL. I even feel bad about putting like a ha-ha at the end of things. Okay, sure, sure. Uh, whatever floats in... And Nick Vinzant's world. We will we will go by those rules. This is not my rules. This is the world's rules that you have been breaking. That, well, I you know I, I don't say the other two. I mean, apparently I say FOMO because it's a cool word to say. Maybe you should say it. FOMO. I, I like it a little bit. I like FOMO, but I can't say it because I'm over the age of 27, which is the same thing applies to you. Uh, I, I I'm not going to stop saying it. FOMO, FOMO, FOMO. You well, will. I just responded to everything you say with FOMO. That's fine. I'll just delete your number. <laughs> FOMO? Mojo? Dori Origato? Mr. Roboto? Come on, that was funny. Give you're, me a little credit. You're almost bringing me around. I'm pretty upset right now, but you're getting a little bit closer. <laughs> um, uh, look, here's, here's my other question. Do you consider yourself to be a risk taker? Not really. 
not not the way that I, I wish that I could be. Explain. Well, you know, I mean, there, there's many things in my life which I which will remain nameless. I, I think the you... older you get, the less amount of risk realistically you can take. I would agree with that because you're not just taking a risk for you. You're essentially taking a risk for your possible family and children. So it gets a little bit more complicated. But have you been exactly. a risk taker before in your life? I mean, oh, I mean, yes, yes, and no. I mean, I, I, I usually don't turn down a challenge. Not necessarily saying those are risks by any means. To be honest, um, the challenges that you're talking about are mainly eating challenges. Sure, but there's still risks, right? I guess. I mean, you could <laughs> eat. I mean, until you, know, you died. I it's it's possible. Well, I'm about two cheeseburgers away from that, so you should be more nicer to me. Anyways. You don't have to say more nicer. You can just say nicer. Yeah, well, you once again, you're not the grammar police. Anyone can be the grammar police if they want to be, and they know about grammar. There's no official body of the grammar police. Guess what? I think I just realized what I'm going to spend my evening doing, and that is taking a photo of you photoshopping a, a grammar police badge on your chest. And putting the picture on Facebook. You know what? I'm going to send you this picture right now. And I want you to, to see your honest reaction to this. Because somebody took somebody took this picture of me today. And I'm going to send you this. And if you don't... you are go, I'll, put, I'll post this picture on Facebook as well for us. You look at this picture. You look at this picture and tell me I'm not a beautiful woman. Oh no! Oh, I, oh, that's uh. <laughs> you, you, do you look me in the eyes and tell me I'm not a beautiful woman? <laughs> I can. Uh... <laughs> just go ahead and say it. Just, it. just go ahead and say it. On a scale of 1 to 10, for people who don't know if we haven't posted this picture yet on our Facebook account, it's one of those things where it swaps you as a man or a woman, and I sent it to John. Look look at that picture and tell me that I'm less than an 8 as a woman. <laughs> you are. You're like a 3 or a 4. That is not true. That is not true whatsoever because the person who took that picture said, wow, you're a beautiful woman. Like, <laughs> I can't. Uh, wow. Um, all I can say is I, I really think that we should social media that and get the people's opinions. What is a risk that you wish you would have taken but did not? Ooh, uh, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a, you tell me one. Let me th Give me a second. Let me think of something. Well, if I'm telling it to you, how are you going to be able to think of what you're doing? Well, you tell me a risk that you that you took. I mean, I would say moving across the country a couple of times for different jobs, that was a risk. I can't honestly what? think of one that I wish that I wish I would have done at the time and did not. I mean, that's I'm trying to think of that. I mean, either I live a really boring life or I've done all I've taken all the risks that, you know, have come my way. I, I don't know. I would actually say that I've taken, at least off the very top of my head, most of the calculated risks that I could have taken and just gone for it.
I can't think of one risk that I didn't at least attempt to do. Actually, now I can think of one. There was a, When I first got out of college, there was two jobs that were offered to me. One of the jobs I had officially locked up, and the other one that probably would have been the better job was not officially looked up, was not officially locked up. And I thought for one brief moment, maybe I should take that one. Ultimately didn't. And then looking back on hindsight, I probably should have taken that job. So that would be a risk that I didn't take that you could make an argument change the entire course of my life. I mean, and let's be honest, if you hadn't made that move, would we even be talking to each other right now? Probably not. That's what's difficult about it. And maybe that's why it makes it look like there aren't these risks that you should have taken is because your life kind of... I guess I think life basically either finds a way to work out or you die. Well, I mean, that that's a whole, like, do you believe in, in fate kind of argument. You know, that, that things work out the way they're supposed to in the end. Did you know that mountain goats are not actually goats? They are more closely related to antelopes. <laughs> I hear they taste like chicken, though. Why would you insult a mountain goat like that? That's probably my favorite animal. I don't find that to be funny. <laughs> They're not your favorite animal. Your favorite animal is a dog. No, my favorite animal is a wolf. Wolf, mountain goat, probably then a dog, I would say. Well, you should see my new dog. He looks like a wolf. Yeah. <laughs> if you get it, listen. Last episode, you said that you got this dog. Kudos to you for adopting the dog. You named it one thing, and then you changed the name. Why wouldn't you just pick it and stick with it? Like, what are you doing? Not even my fault. The wife takes all the blame for that. 100%. I, I, I got nothing. What, would, what did you say when she said she wanted to change the name? I said, I don't give a shit, but, like, let's pick a name and stick to it, honey bunches. <sighs> Which name do you honestly like better? Max, the old name, or what is it, Archie? No, it was Mac, first off. Whatever. And it's and it's Archie. I, I like Mac better, but his his last sh- kennel or shelter name, whatever you want to call it, that was given to him was Archie. So you went back to Archie? I don't think a big dog should be named Archie. That's a little dog name. I've, I've said the same thing. I have a feeling that it has to do... With uh, the royal baby uh, being named Archie, and but I can't get that, you know, I can't get a confirmation from the wife on that. That is one thing that I legitimately do not understand in any way. The obsession with them, I don't, I don't, I don't get it at all. I've always admired the Queen, and you know, and, and Prince Philip. What? What do you mean? Yeah, you I mean, all- how can you? How can you not admire her? I don't have any opinion of her necessarily. I just don't know how you would... I mean, I like her. She seems pretty cool. She's got some great corgi dogs. But I don't understand how you would say that you admire her. Like, what has she done for you that you would say, wow, you know what, I really admire the Queen of England? Well, first off, I don't think that she has to, like, do anything. I don't think anyone has to do something to to that particular person for you to admire them. I admire her because she's been in power since 1952. No, I think I that she has influence, with... but she doesn't have any kind of political power necessarily, right? Sure. Well, 
maybe influence was, uh, is the word I should have picked it. I mean, I, I think it's hard at least not to, if you don't want to say admire her for her influence that she's brought to the world for 60 fucking years, then I, I think you at least have to respect it. <laughs> what if you were the other guy? Like her son that's supposed to be next in line, but basically is not going to get a chance to do anything because he's also really old. Like, how would you feel? Do you think, do you think that he's just waiting, like looking at his watch every other day? Well, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which it's Charles, I believe, uh, he has announced publicly that he's going to abdicate, which it would then go to his oldest son. Uh, which will be uh, William. Hmm. I don't know how I feel about your amount of Royals knowledge. <laughs> I I don't know what to say to that. Like I feel like you're half impressed yet half half half. Don't you don't know what to say about it? What I am much more interested in. That's fine. Is the fact that a mountain goat can jump twelve feet. See, like your like your hatred for uh, or, or not caring for Queen Elizabeth, I think mountain goats are terrible animals. Why? I mean, I have you have you ever been in contact with a mountain goat? No, but that is my basically my dream is to see a mountain goat. John's fast five. Pew 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 pew. pew. John's fast five. Pew pew pew. John's Fast Five. My turn! My turn! <laughs> In a second. Wait. My- Shh. <laughs> this isn't going to work while he's out awake. You know that, right? Do you have a Fast Five? What's going on? The rainbow. Uh, what? I don't necessarily have a Fast Five, but I have a couple of interesting things that I that I wanted to bring to your attention and get your opinion on. I feel like you shouldn't necessarily say that they are interesting until we judge whether or not they are interesting. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. So so the first one is if uh and I know you're not the biggest beer drinker, though Loaded Coronas uh shout out to our unofficial uh official sponsor for this episode, Corona. Uh Loaded Coronas might be my my new favorite drink. It really is delicious. It's it's actually better. I don't know what kind of tequila you're getting, but it's actually better with cheaper tequila. I think I usually use El Himidor. Okay. <laughs> I mean it's it's not I mean it's not top shelf by any means, but it's not like the bottom of the barrel either. Okay, anyway. Um so uh so Natty Light, the beer company, are looking for summer interns. To basically just drink beer for money. The, literally, literally, the, the description for this says, the intern must be 21, should have qualifications including being social media savvy, uh, meme creation skills, and be outgoing but not annoying. There is a fine line. Is that possible for somebody who drinks Natty Light? <laughs> Uh, you know, shout out to Mark Hooten, uh, who nobody here really knows or is listening knows, but uh, you can find him on Facebook. And as soon as you see his profile picture, you will see a man who is just encased in natty light. That, that he does look like a like you don't even need to know anything about him. You just see him like, yep, 
He drinks Natty Light. What was your cheap beer of choice when you were underage? Oh, God. It was uh, uh, Miller High Life. See, I was Keystone Light. I started out started out Natty Light and then went to the Keystone Light 30-pack only because it was the 30-pack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I forget what you could get. Like, You get like 12 Miller High Life bottles for like seven ninety nine or something. Have you ever gotten this super, super generic kind of beer where it literally... I remember getting it in a gas station in Missouri once, and it was just a gold can and it had black letters that said beer on it. I it, it kind of scares me. I mean, I I've lived in in like uh, you know metropolises all my life, but for country backwoods folk like you, I really wonder sometimes like what they sell in some of these like gas station slash party stores. Oh. I mean, you can get a lot of, I don't think it's any different than what you have. I mean, you still have to be a major distributor to get a lot of that stuff out, especially if it's cheap. You might like, be able to get some really, like, you can get moonshine or something where I'm from. You could get people who would make it. <laughs> like, what is, uh, you know, and I, I don't know, you're, you're from Derby, Kansas, for those who don't know. And like, is that a decent-sized city? Um, the city in and of itself is probably 30, maybe 30,000 now. Wichita, the, Wichita is probably 400, maybe 450,000. But there's obviously cities within driving distance of those that are like a thousand, 2,000, I would think, right? Yeah, I mean, there's cities within driving distance of every city that are 2,000. Like, that All doesn't right, make any sense. No, my point, it does make sense. My point is, I want to know the weirdest thing you've ever uh, come across in one of the backwoods uh, liquor stores? Like, what's the craziest, most awkward thing you've ever come across? Actual shit on the floor of a gas station. Just sitting there on the floor of the gas station. <laughs> See, it did make sense, because that's a great story. Yeah. Actual shit on the floor of the gas station. Walked in, it was just in the middle of the aisle. They're like, they're... That's 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 human shit, right? The guy's like, yeah. He's gonna come back and clean it up later. That's fucking terrible, but that's a great story. So I, I want to bring another another uh, another question to you. Uh, this past week, Albert Pujols, who's a baseball player, became the third player ever in Major League history uh, to hit his 2,000th RBI. They were playing in Detroit. A Detroit fan caught the ball. It was a home run. He caught the ball and refused to give it give it back to Albert Pujols, no matter what either organization offered him. His reason being that the offers were too lowballish in the beginning, and he felt he was being, you know, mistreated as a fan. So the idea of somebody has this kind of monumental achievement, should you give it back to them just because? Yeah, yeah. Say, say you were that person. Uh, who got the ball, would you give it back, or how would you play it? I guess it depends on if it was the home team that I was rooting for, and it depends on the other player. If it's kind of a guy that you just don't like, then F him. Like, you make, how much does Albert Pujols make? Like, $300 million contract? He can well, give I mean, you... I, I'm probably a few million off, but I know he's above $15 million a year. Look, <laughs> everything... Pay, pay, pay what it's worth to you. And if if the guy wants 50000 and you don't want to pay him 50000 then you can't complain because it's not worth that much to you. That's the way that I would look at it, is that pay, pay, pay what it's worth to you. 
And don't complain if the other person doesn't want to sell it to you for that because it's ultimately, I think it's in your hands. If you want it, go get it. And if you don't go get it, then you didn't really want it that much. I don't think that anybody owes you an obligation to give it to you. Okay. I mean, that's fair. I mean, and Albert Pujols kind of said that, uh, you know, whether he was just doing that to save face or not, which I'm sure he probably was. But this is a stat that's universal. Even casual fans know what an RBI is. What is it for people who don't know? It's a run batted in. Okay. So, and, he, and, he, and he's the third player ever in history to, to achieve 2,000 runs batted in. Ever in history. And the reason this guy's refusing to give the ball back, which, like, base, like the MLB wants it. It's not just Albert Pools. Like, Major League Baseball wants it. And he's not going to give it back because he feels he was being treated unfairly. I th- I'm completely fine with it. He had to pay for the ticket, right? Right. So what's the big deal? You know what? This is if if that fan went back there and said, "Hey, this is my 2,000th game. Will you let me in for free?" You think anybody's doing that? No, of course not. So then, what's the issue? Like, I think that people just they they want something without giving him something. Right, and that's and but he didn't go into details, at least from what I read, of what wasn't offered to him. I mean, who knows? They may have offered him ten, fifteen grand, and he wanted a hundred and fifty. But ten, fifteen grand, which would be an incredible amount to most people, is probably not an incredible amount to Albert Pujols in Major League Baseball, right? So that's like right. saying, "Hey, I'll, I know there's this thing that you want. I'll give you a dollar for it." Like let's let's just for the sake of argument assume that what they were going to give him is the equivalent of a dollar to if you did the math, right? Then then who's right in that circumstance? Like if you're talking about a number that is proportionately more manageable, then who's right? Does your opinion change if ultimately like, hey Albert Pujols wants this, I'll give you a dollar for it? And the guy said no. Right. I mean, you know, when you have guys that are making between one hundred and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per at bat, and they have seven hundred at bats a year. I mean, I guess that kind of puts that in perspective. Yeah, like I don't think they probably they probably didn't offer him very much. Now, would it be worth it for that guy to probably? Would I take like ten grand for that? Yeah, I would. I'd probably take a hundred bucks because it would mean nothing <laughs> to me. Uh, are you ready for our? T- are you ready for our top five? I am. I. I'm actually quite excited about it. So this, if you do this shit to me where, you know, I pick the top five and you're like, oh, well, I didn't come up with a list. I'm going to be really disappointed. Well, I always get worried when you're excited about a top five because then you overthink it and then your excitement makes it makes it less enjoyable for, for, for me, I think. Well, I mean, our, our top five, you know, fictional dogs uh, is blowing up. You know, people love that list. They love my list. That was well. They live both. They love both of our lists. I believe most most people thought that mine was correct. But let's just go ahead and move on. So this one though is top five fictional cats. I went by the definition of it. I'm going to be interested to see what you did. So what's your number five on top five fictional cats? I have, and this is my only questionable cat of the of my list. Okay. And I'm and, and I'm curious to see how you, what you say to this. And so I have Simba, and I have the Pink Panther. Neither of those are cats. What do you mean the Pink Panther isn't a cat? They're in the cat family. They're not a cat. 
when you said okay, top five so, fictional cats, we're talking about cats, like a house cat, not a tiger. All right, well, or a panther. Because, Those are different things. Just because I knew you'd say that, I had, I had like in like a five A in the back, just in case. And uh, seeing, I guess we're disqualifying any one of the cat family. Yeah, we're just going with uh, cats, regular cats. My number, my number five is meow. Uh, guess what my number five is also meowth no way yeah (laughs) that's awesome yeah i was pretty like oh fucking meowth i'm gonna put meowth in there (laughs) for those who don't know meowth is a pokemon one of the uh original team rocket members and really does nothing in the series but yet has somehow become one of the faces of Pokemon. I don't know how it happened. For those who don't know, John has a horrifying amount of Pokemon knowledge. Thank you. That's a compliment, I think. Yeah, but it's a little to the point where people would be like, whoa, whoa. uh, (laughs) This guy is into Pokemon. What was the highest level that you achieved? Were you a Pokemon master? You're goddamn right I was. I got... I got all eight physical badges sitting on my shelf. <laughs> wow. At the age of 29, too, which is impressive. Um, what's your number four? It's actually 30, but no big deal. <laughs> um, my number four, I had to go with, uh, you know, maybe the most famous, uh, you know, older generation cat, and that's Felix the Cat. Okay. I know of that by name, but I can't picture it. Well, I mean, I think for our generation, because we were, we're too young for the cartoons, uh, it's, you know, especially in some movies, you always see those freaky fucking Felix the Cat clocks. Oh, okay, I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't have a disagreement at that at four. I think that's a relatively, I think that's a decent place to put this. Uh, my number four, people who know who this is are going to absolutely, I think, agree that this is a top five fictional cat. People who don't know who this is are just going to be like, what what, what, what the heck is this? My number four is the cat bus from My Neighbor Totoro. Uh, I have no idea what, what that is, but okay. Okay, well, it's one of the great movies of Western and Eastern civilization, so you should probably check it out. It's called Cat Bus? No, it's the cat bus in the movie My Neighbor Totoro. All right, well, uh, we'll just move on to my number three. Okay. Uh, I went with Tomcat. Oh, you're, you're talking about Tomcat from Tom and Jerry? Oh, yeah. Okay, so jumping ahead, I have Tom from Tom and Jerry and Sylvester tied at number two. Okay, fair enough. Uh, my number Sylvester three. Sylvester did not make my list, but. I think they're kind of basically the same thing. I would. Look, Tom is definitely 2A and Sylvester is 2B. But I think they're basically the same. So my number three is Garfield. I had him at number two. Okay. I. So, so we kind of just flip flop, you know, twos and threes there for the most part. So number one, I'm going to be interested to hear what your number one is. I think that once you hear it, or at least hear mine, I don't think there's much of an argument. You kind of have to go, yeah, that's that's number one. Who do you, who well, do you got? Who's your number one? Well, first, it was, it was really hard for me to pick Garfield or my number one. So 
Uh, but I have number one as uh, the cat in the hat. Yep. Yeah, I think that's that's easy number one. Books, movies, you know, media. I mean, everyone knows who the cat in the hat is. I don't feel, though, that cat fictional cats compare anywhere anyway to fictional dogs. I think fictional dogs are by far the stronger group. I'm curious to do a, you know, best of bracket and see who comes out on top between the top cats and the top dogs. That's an interesting one. Yeah, I think we could figure, well, one of us could figure out a way to do that. Uh, who did you leave out? Uh, well, I mean, it, in terms of cats, I, there aren't a whole lot of many more cats, I think. You know, like I said, I didn't have Sylvester on there. I also wrote down Puss in Boots. That's the only other ones that I was thinking of. It's a, it, when you If you went cat in the broader sense, there's tons of them. But when you just right, go specifically yeah. cat, it's a little bit harder. I think you could make an argu- argument for Crookshanks from Harry Potter, the cat from Sabrina Teenage Witch you could put in there, <laughs> Snowball 1 through 4 from The Simpsons. Yeah, I had Heathcliff down. Heathcliff, but not Heathcliff's not nearly as good as Garfield. No, not even close, not at all. I would like to think that one of the Thundercats should have been on there. I don't know which one is technically a cat, but I think one of the Thundercats should have been on there. <laughs> I also had down uh, uh, Stimpy from Run and Stimpy. Oh, that's a good... Ooh, that, I would actually put Stimpy ahead of Cat Bus. I went and might take Cat Bus out and put Stimpy <laughs> in there. I forgot about Stimpy. Uh, yeah, but other than that, I, I didn't have... Uh... Like I said, I wasn't sure. I know we had said cats, but I didn't know if we were doing cat family or just like straight up cat cats. So I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't do uh, you know add any more. If we did, if we did cat family, would your number one change, or would you still go cat in the hat? Yeah, no, it would still be cat in the hat. However, I think like my my top three would stay the top three: cat in the hat, Garfield, and Tomcat. But then after, you know, Felix and Meowth and, you know, you know, we, I'd probably have to look at those pretty closely. I think that my top one and two would stay the same, but I think basically everything else would change. You got to throw Simba in there. You got Lion-O. You got Panthro. You got whatever Snarf is. You've got Scar. <laughs> you've got... Scar's a badass. The Black Panther. I mean, I don't know if you can make that. Oh, shit. That's a good one, actually. I didn't even think... I don't, I don't know if... You could use them or not. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good... Is the Black Panther technically a cat? Well, then... <laughs> uh, look, I would say this. If the Black Panther is technically a cat, then wouldn't Catwoman also be a cat? No, but they're both people. But Catwoman has no cat cat powers. She's just a woman who likes to be a cat. Black Panther has panther powers. I think that's what makes it different. All I know is uh, Michelle Pfeiffer plays Catwoman, the best Catwoman. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of the Profoundly Pointless Podcast. I want to thank Hazel Finley for joining us. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. Coming up in the next couple of episodes, we're going to be talking to a psychic, a Game of Thrones professional, so to speak, and a couple of more episodes about space, skydiving, special healing, 
all kinds of stuff coming up. So I think we've, I think we've actually finally kind of figured ourselves out a little bit. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.